Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 24th day of February 2024. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and because this week was a whole lot different, tonight's show is going to be a bit different as well. I'll give you the title, in fact, right off the bat. I've decided to call it, It's What You Don't Know, and sometimes that's what matters most. And as usual, we'll kick things off with a few examples. I'll start with this one from Zero Hedge which has to do with an interview by Barry Weiss of the Free Press, who sat down with Harvard economics professor Roland Fryer at the University of Austin in the second week of February to discuss what it means to <laughs> pursue the truth. Fryer is a highly respected economist, says the intro here, and he told Weiss that the intense blowback that he was dealt after having published a study in 2016 showing that there were, quote, no racial differences in officer-involved shootings, unquote, well, cost him a lot. After the study was published, in a matter of days, he said all hell broke loose, and people were, quote, losing their minds when they didn't like the result, unquote. And what do you bet, folks? They were knee-jerk leftists. Yeah, that's going to be the point, even though he probably wouldn't use that terminology coming from a knee-jerk leftist institution himself. The study found that police were over two times more likely to use physical force, such as manhandling or beating, against black and Hispanic individuals compared to people from other races. But there's a caveat. On the other hand, the findings also revealed that police were about 23.8% less inclined to use firearms against black individuals and 8.5% less inclined to use them against Hispanic individuals as compared to whites. In other words, although the study didn't really come right out and say it this way, you're safer being a black man when it comes to being shot by a cop. Said Dr. Fryer, I lived under priest protection for about 30 to 40 days. He said, I had a seven-year-old daughter at the time. I was going to the grocery store to get diapers with an armed guard. Fryer told Weiss that the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri back in 2014 is how he initially became interested in the topic. He was shocked by the result, though, because he expected the study to find what the leftists who didn't want to accept it because it didn't meet their expectations believed that there would be evidence of bias in police shootings. The biggest conclusion from this study read, and here it is verbatim, quote, yet on the most extreme use of force, officer-involved shootings, we were unable to detect any racial differences in either the raw data or when accounting for controls, unquote. And at the time, liberal elites warned Fryer not to publish the study because it would ruin his career. Then he said in 2019, Claudine Gay, yeah, the infamous Claudine Gay, you may recall, who was Harvard's dean at the time, placed him on a two-year leave for alleged sexual harassment. And she is a real piece of work. Considering that Gay is no longer president of the Woke College, following her botched response to claims of anti-Semitism on campus and also plagiarism allegations, Fryer demonstrated to Weiss that he had the courage to publish the unpopular truth despite liberal elite's attempts at Harvard and elsewhere to silence him and others in pursuit of truth because the study didn't fit the progressive narrative at the time, nor did it support the agenda of the Marxist group Black Lives Matter. Two brief different and yet somehow the same stories from different sources, both of which lead in the direction that I'm intending to go. One from the Atlantic, the famous very leftist Atlantic, 
The headline of this one, at least while it lasted, was America is headed toward collapse. And when I saw it linked, it was because, gee, when the Atlantic comes right out and says this, you got to figure we must be getting really close. That one was authored by Peter Turchin. He gave some of the reasons that probably wouldn't surprise any regular listeners here. And later I found it really difficult to reaccess. I kept getting a message, we're working on getting that for you, but they never did. Maybe they just decided to put it behind a paywall so that people that weren't willing to support their leftist agenda couldn't see it anymore. Or who knows, maybe they were only following orders. The second story, though, which comes from Ethan Huff at Natural News, arguably won't really surprise us either, but it is somewhat revealing. It's about the British Medical Journal, which is a publication of the British Medical Sick Association, and they're called to escalate the fight against what they call vaccine hesitancy. Yes, those people will not assent to what we want to do to them. And they're calling for, and here I'm quoting, more behavioral interventions online, including on socialist media. And in order to, and now I'll quote the whole sentence, reduce vaccine hesitancy driven by misinformation on social media, the BMJ wants big tech, big brother, and all of the other big public-private partners and platforms to promote the visibility of what their editors and controllers consider to be reliable health information while reducing or censoring the visibility of anything and everything else. And they also want more proaction on the part of socialist media to deal with the proliferation of misinformation. I bet you feel safer and more informed already. Here's at least a semi-related story, also having to do with medicine or what now passes for it, from a, uh, well... Not exactly a publication you could even call centrist. They certainly lean left. They're not on the vanguard or the tip of the spear when it comes to truth in journalism either. Well, but on the other hand, there are no CNN or New York Times. Occasionally, they will come out and admit something or other, and this is an example of that. The Daily Mail's headline from the end of the week of February 16th says, Top Canadian Surgeon Reveals the, and they put this in quotes, dreaded truth about sex change operations. A sex change surgeon himself has unwittingly, they say, revealed the dangers of so-called trans procedures, warning of things like poorly trained doctors leaving patients with dead appendages. Uh, you know what he's referring to there, don't you? And other dreaded complications. Dr. Alex Laugani, a clinician at Canada's Metropolitan Center of Surgery, made some damaging revelations, they say, about the pretty bad, his words, effects of sex change operations while addressing colleagues. The event was sponsored by the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, Warpath, oh no, WPATH, and it was recorded. And the footage was made public via a records request by the Daily Caller News Foundations. And in the process, Dr. Laungani, whether he likes it or not, seemed to have joined a growing list of trans experts who, when speaking with like-minded professionals behind closed doors in clinical settings, at least seems to be a bit more candid about the downside of the evil that they're doing to people who uh, don't seem to be fully informed about what the docs intend to do to them. And yes, these are also things that generally the press doesn't want to talk about anyway because they have an agenda to push. And here comes at least part of the admission, which is not completely shocking, but maybe a bit surprising from the likes of the Daily Mail. Advocates of trans medicine, sick, they write, say it is a lifesaver among a suicide-prone group because it lets them live authentically with their altered genitalia, well, at least for a while. What they don't want to tell you, of course, is that these statistics seem to indicate they're more likely to commit suicide after they realize what's been done to them. 
On the other hand, says the Daily Mail, critics warn of a cult-like fad with ever more so-called trans people coming out and getting the risky procedures while Warpath and other medical sick groups are hijacked by ideologies and ideologues who push reckless standards of care. And that, I think, is being a bit too kind. In the video, Dr. Langani warns of an explosion of Evermore clinics catering to the rising numbers of uh, propagandized trans patients where there's often, quote, a lack of training and not proper training. And while this mass rollout may give the wannabe trans patients access to surgery, it comes at the cost, suggested the doctor, of quality care. And then he went through some pretty graphic slides showing what happens when the modified genitalia... uh, Let's just put it kindly, don't work as advertised. Rather than being too graphic, here are a list of what the Daily Mail calls post-op horrors, including, quote, rectovaginal fistula, pelvic floor dysfunction, and clitoris necrosis, and so on. Many patients, he said, have problems after surgery, and surgical wounds reopen in, are you ready, folks, fully three-quarters of cases. But I guess it's good repeat business, right? And no wonder they don't want people finding out about this. Because we got something to sell. And the ultimate bottom line is what it is in almost every other case of something they want to sell you, where they want to hide the consequences, genocide. And oh yeah, this kind of fits. Anybody else remember the recent rash of tranny mass shootings? There was Nashville and then Texas? Maybe women taking mass injections of the male hormone testosterone isn't such a great idea after all. But they're certainly never going to tell you what other drugs, like SSRIs, you can pretty well bank on that one, they're taking along with it. And arguably for the same reason that this sequence is building up to. You're not supposed to find out. All of which brings me to a story that's going to sound a bit different, but I will contend is very much related. And this one you probably did hear, from the waste stream anyway. You just almost certainly didn't hear the truth, and in many cases, still haven't. Remember the mass episode of so-called gun violence, the shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade? Why, it was so dramatically overemphasized, it almost upstaged Taylor Swift. You certainly heard about gun violence, and you probably, or did you, hear about the white racist shooters? These aren't the droids you're looking for. These aren't the droids we're looking for. Move along. Come on. Turns out they weren't white, and if they were racist, it was of a different and antithetical to the narrative kind. So quick, change the subject and hide the truth, or don't talk about it at all. So let's kick off a look at what they will talk about with another representative example, again from the Daily Mail out of the UK. The headline says, two minors have been charged in the Kansas City Chief Parade Shooting. Teenagers, it says in the first paragraph, have been charged as juveniles in the KC Chief Parade shooting, despite a prosecutor previously having said they would be accused as adults. So that's the emphasis of this story. The prosecutor changed his mind as to why, interestingly, they're not going to tell you. Or maybe they won't tell you the truth. Here's the second paragraph. The suspects who remain unidentified by authorities are charged with gun-related offenses. Well, that's the important part, don't you know? It's gun-related offenses that matter. And resisting arrest, said the Jackson County Family Court Division. And then there's this a bit further down. As Kansas City tries to recover after the mass shooting, booga, 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 that turned a Super Bowl celebration into chaos. Oh, yeah, not to mention a political theater just fit for the Biden fear to try to distract attention from being senile and otherwise an anti-constitutional tyrant. 
police are working with juvenile prosecutors to determine what happens next. And maybe with the press and with the White House spin division to determine how to propagandize it. Wouldn't be the first time, folks, as you know, and it certainly wouldn't be the first time that they did it and lied about it and then covered it up. So the fact that you're not hearing about it simply is par for the course. It's possible, folks, you may have seen the video, which is up online, and does tell you a couple of things that the press doesn't seem to want you to know at all, although the Daily Mail did at least include a picture or two of the alleged perpetrators, which might allow people to conclude at least one or two major details, which the press doesn't want you to. Like, for example, they certainly weren't white domestic violent extremists, like you may have been led to believe. And it turns out there are two very specific words that you will not find in this Daily Mail coverage, or for that matter, in most of the waste-stream media's so-called coverage of an event that just doesn't fit the narrative, which really does, though, fit the pattern. One of those words is gang, as in gang banger or gang warfare or gang shootout. Uh Uh-oh, nope, can't talk about that. Although a couple of politicos did actually slip and confirm it through the back door. Oops. The other word, folks, is black, as in not of the same race as the press would like you to believe since they're pushing for a race war. And what's funny about both those words is that I did a search of the article right from the Daily Mail's website to make sure they weren't in there. And they weren't. But ironically, when I searched for black, I found no less than seven explicit references to black in the accompanying right-side clickbait. As in little black dress, black bikini, black bra, you name it, because they have no problem using the word in a description of anything except violent perpetrators. And this is perhaps even more fascinating, with a tip of the hat to Jack Posobiec, who was the first person I heard pointed out explicitly. They and the Kansas City mayor and Missouri governor and police chief and all the other high-ranking officials, and of course press that are supposed to be the fourth estate, want you to believe that the reason they're not going to tell you anything about these violent, youthful black gangbangers is because Missouri law makes juvenile hearings not open to the public. And they're also concerned about, what, the privacy, I guess, of these youthful wannabe mass murderers. Well, as Jack Posobiec pointed out, how about Kyle Rittenhouse? He was a juvenile. Remember Kenosha, Wisconsin? Where it's evidently a crime to fight back against arson and rioting? Well, if it's committed by the likes of Black Lives Matter anyway... He was actually acting in self-defense, and they literally hung him from the yard arms, put his picture all across the country, and openly asked that he be given the death penalty in far too many cases. Why, he was even called a white supremacist and demonized personally by the fake president in a campaign ad. You know what's really ironic, folks? And maybe this is the real problem. Kyle Rittenhouse actually effectively and properly used an AR-15. He not only showed proper gun handling, he didn't spray the crowd and shoot a whole bunch of innocent bystanders like the gangbangers in Kansas City did. And you got it. That just doesn't fit the narrative. Even though he was a juvenile, and when it does fit their narrative, they don't want to tell you their names, their race, or their affiliation, or anything else, especially if they're transgendered. And remember Nick Sandman, the Catholic young man, and yes, also a juvenile, who didn't commit a crime, certainly didn't hurt, much less kill anybody. But you wouldn't know that from the media coverage that demonized him, too, in spite of his youth. Oh, yeah, he was white, though. Does that make it okay? But wait a minute. Let's not forget Kansas City's own. The nine-year-old young Chiefs fan, who seems to have a Native American heritage to boot, named Holden Armenta. 
who was demonized nationally for the horrid, insipid, unbelievable crime of dressing up in the Kansas City Chiefs' colors, including, arguably, face paint, not only befitting his heritage, but also the team colors of the Kansas City Chiefs. And trying to go to a football game in Kansas City looking like a fan. How dare you, you Indian boy, you. Can you just start to get the tiniest little whiff, folks, of a double standard? Or, as I might want to suggest, is it something more insipid and more evil than that? Like maybe an agenda. I guess maybe what they're trying to tell us is the following. You want to kill some folks? Fine. The ones you're after have already been pre-disarmed for you anyway. But if you want to get away with it, you'd better check the right PC boxes. And if you do, not only will we cover for you, hell, we'll lie about it, blame somebody else, and hide the truth. All the better to steal their guns, ha, 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 so that next time they won't even be able to think about shooting back. Right, Kyle? Turns out, folks, that what you don't hear can be just as important as what you do. We'll pause here briefly for at least a bit of counterpoint, because sometimes they do come right out and tell you what they intend to do. This one comes from Paul Joseph Watson via Modernity News, as well as Zero Hedge, and, surprisingly, but really not, from MSNBC, where a black activist lawyer named Ben Crump, who specializes in civil rights cases, sick, and was an attorney for the families of Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the infamous George Floyd, actually came right out and said what you already knew they've been thinking. If you want to eliminate crime in the United States, hey! Just make it all legal, and then we don't have a problem. Well, the destroyers, at least, don't have a problem. Everybody else certainly does. And those who are reporting crime don't have to report anything, which makes the propaganda a lot easier. Said one of the many commentators who saw it, this is probably the most insane thing you ever heard, even from MSNBC. Celebrity black activist lawyer Ben Crump, and then the hashtag is at Ben Crump Law, says that criminal behavior in America is just black culture. Yeah, see, it's just culture. And you know what, folks? There's enough truth in that that it ought to scare the living hell out of everybody that's been paying attention to what they're doing to the culture. He demands the legalization of crime, and the interesting or scary thing is that a whole bunch of other black racial activists have all expressed their agreement, including those with him there on stage. Here's the actual quote. We can get rid of all the crime in America overnight, just like that, said Crump, to his fellow guests, one of whom was the infamous Al Sharpton. And people ask, how, Attorney Crump? Well, change the definition of crime. Of course, said another of the guests. If you wanted to find what conduct is going to be made criminal, you can predict who the criminals are going to be, added Crump. Now that, folks, is a really telling statement. Let me read it again. If you wanted to find what conduct is going to be made criminal, you can predict who the criminals are going to be. And so guess what? If you criminalize doing business, you can make criminals of everybody that needs to be made criminals while you allow the real criminals to have their way with them. Helps to disarm the intended victims first, too, as we've seen. And this is real big nowadays, too. It's called violation of the ex post facto clause in the Constitution. You just make whatever they did in the past criminal and then go after them for it, especially if you want to rig the next presidential election. But as I thought about this story, I couldn't help but also remember one of the most famous quotations from all of the writings of Ayn Rand. And in this case, it's from Atlas Shrugged. And it goes something like this, quote, There's no way to rule innocent men. The only power any government has is the power to crack down on criminals. Well, when there aren't enough criminals, one makes them. One declares so many things to be a crime that it becomes impossible for men to live without breaking laws, unquote. And it looks like this criminal attorney, and I think that's really the right way to phrase it, has come up with the converse of that. You criminalize the conduct that has built society, 
and then you decriminalize the conduct that you intend to use to destroy it. It's kind of like a double whammy. And when it comes to recognizing where that leads and what happens to society when literally lawlessness abounds and evil is celebrated, you could even say they call evil good and good evil, this next exchange from the show is, uh, well, educational. Another guest responded by saying that all black people were criminals by nature. Huh? If anybody else said that, you know they'd be called a racist, and rightfully so. To which Crump responded, quote, they made the laws to criminalize our culture, black culture. Unquote. Well, uh, actually, no. And here's what they're missing, folks. In this case, the law was made by the creator himself. Things like, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. And that seems to be the essence of the culture that's being undermined. Listen to a bit more of the discussion here. In this case, after the show was over, on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called X... One individual noted this has clearly been the Democrat position. It's also the communist position, folks. They're just still breaking people into it a bit more gradually. He's just saying the quiet part out loud. Another one noted, well, actually, he's pretty close to being right because black African and tribal cultures allow a lot of killing and taking of property. And the concept of private property is really from European culture. It's from scripture. Let's not forget that. European culture was successful for centuries even while they actually understood that. But, said he and others, we don't want that kind of behavior here. Which, by the way, and your host can't help but note this again, is why they're importing that kind of culture by the tens of millions. And finally, somebody noted, and maybe this is really the bottom line. It's certainly the intent, your host will suggest. Does anybody still doubt that there's no fixing this? At least not anymore. After all, when Sodom and Gomorrah got there, if we've read the book anyway, we know what happened. All of which leads me to the next logical element of this progression. Economist and cycles guru Martin Armstrong has an excellent piece up today about the state and city of New York and how, as he puts it, it's totally out of control and it's time for a giant short. The latest is that the criminals there are openly saying what we already knew they intended to do all along. Seize Donald Trump's buildings in the crooked state if he can't come up with the ransom money, over a third of a billion dollars. There's been no shortage of developers over the last few days who were at least once in that evil state and city who've come out and said they are now criminalizing the way people have done business for years and the way that they'll have to do business if they want to stay in business. So what are many of them doing? Exactly what Martin Armstrong is suggesting. Get the hell out of New York City. Writes Martin Armstrong, NYC is totally out of control. These bogus charges were never brought against anyone, and there was no victim. This definition of fraud can be applied now, and, and don't think for a second people living there don't know it, in New York City. And obviously, he says, this is an attempt to interfere in the 2024 election, because if Trump hadn't run for president, there would have been no such charges. And he says, New York is just so un-American, you can't even make this up. This radical attorney general, yes, as he puts it, Letitia James, destroyer of worlds, not only has barred Trump from running his own company, but they also appointed a former organized crime boss, a prosecutor, but maybe in New York it's the same thing, to manage the Trump organization. And this guy has no business capability. The state's attempting to seize control of the financial assets of Trump without trial by jury, or even a jury-rigged trial, to shut him down and prevent him from running for office. Trump, he knows, was denied the right to defend himself before a jury. And also, says Martin Armstrong, they did that to my company, Princeton Economics. And here follows a bit of his history, just to show you that there are other people that have been high-profile that Big Brother 
that it wants to come after. So Trump isn't necessarily the first. He's just the highest profile and, of course, the only one who was ever actually elected president and then denied the office. And Martin's story has been told before, but if you haven't heard it, it's kind of fascinating. This is a great brief summary. They alleged, he said, in my case, that a billion bucks was missing. When I told them that the bank stole the money, they said they believed the bank. Yet there was never any evidence that I'd withdrawn the money. And in the end, the bank had to plead guilty and then repay my clients. Still, they, meaning Big Brother, and uh, that would be New York City in this case, used a fake allegation to seize Princeton Economics. They shut down all forecasting, which was their covert goal, and made up allegations that not one member of the press questioned, except Mark Pittman of Bloomberg News, whom they promptly barred from writing about what they were doing. And Trump, he notes, is getting the very same treatment. So welcome, he says, to NYC. No, not the big apple, the big sewer of legal corruption. And he suggests next at this point in the piece what Trump ought to do. Basically declare bankruptcy and move to Florida. And along the way in the process, selling everything he can in New York while it's still possible to sell anything where just maybe there might be a semblance of the rule of law left. But that takes us to the break. We'll pick it up right there when we get back. Stay with us. When I think back on all the crap I learned in high school It's a wonder I can think at all And my lack of education hasn't hurt me I can read the writing on the wall. Take me out to the black. Tell them I ain't coming back. Burn the land and boil the sea. You can't take the sky from me. Welcome back now to the second segment of the show for this evening, folks. I am, again, your host, Mark Call. And today we're talking about things that are important, but, uh, well, really, it's what you don't know that might end up being a real problem. And guess what? A lot of that turns out to be deliberate. When we went to the break, I was talking about another example of that, the destruction of the rule of law. And in particular, we saw it writ large over the last week in New York City where basically they don't even care if you recognize that a communist regime got nothing on what they're pulling and what they're destroying, the entire Big Apple. Yeah, they want to get Trump and prevent him from rolling back even a bit of their beautiful wickedness. They have virtually destroyed that city already, but it's just a sacrificial pawn along the way because the intent is to destroy not only the United States, but literally Western civilization. And that's kind of where Martin Armstrong was headed, and that's where we'll pick it up now that we're back from the break. And he suggests that what Trump ought to do, this is kind of interesting, folks, and at least it helps to uh, flesh out the story, file bankruptcy in Florida. Then he can move all of his assets to Florida and save his companies. Do that now ASAP. And then, of course, sell everything in New York City. Because here's the rub, and this is the point. No court, no what now passes for a court in New York, will ever uphold the law. And it will require, if it actually happens, the Supreme Court to intervene. And remember, folks, a majority of those there are either on the take or outright communists, but maybe I repeat myself, or being blackmailed, or all of the above. 
Continues Armstrong, this is so outrageous, I fear that Trump's case will be the catalyst for the decline and fall of the entire United States. We can't possibly stand united as a nation under such an outrageous, literally fraudulent legal system. When the rule of law collapses like this, no nation has ever survived very long throughout history. And now we can see 2032 coming and why the computer has forecast, and that would be his computer and his system called Socrates, that there may not even be an election in 2028. They need to stop Trump, he says, because they're taking us to war, canceling paper money, and taxing everything we do in the name of bogus climate change. And at the same time, who is ordering lockdowns and mandatory vaccines as they completely surrender our sovereignty? But the real problem, the more immediate one here, and this is the thing he addresses next, is that New York City is just plain completely out of control. The integrity of assets is seriously under question. And my sincere advice to Trump, he reiterates here, is to sell all assets in New York City and get the hell out of that corrupt city and state. And here's the point, and this is what is being demonstrated. Nobody, and he means nobody, and guess what? A lot of folks are starting to see it, should invest anything in New York City because there simply is no rule of law and no separation of powers, which may even be worse. It's a political dictatorship that you simply cannot fight because there's no legal system to fight it in. No judge in New York City will defend the Constitution, much less go against their peers. It is, in fact, folks, a city run literally by the mob. It's just that Big Brother and the mob are now one and the same. He notes that, as we talked about the other day, Chicago Ray, that at least initially kicked off the truckers' boycott of New York City, seems to have caved. All they have to do, says Armstrong, is target someone. They'll routinely use taxes to go after innocent people as well as journalists if they do not cooperate. And as any number of people who have gone up against New York can attest, if you don't play ball, if you don't comply, they come after you personally. And you're mean, you little dog, too. And folks, if you haven't heard this next part, it's certainly, uh, well, educational. I warned, says Martin Armstrong, that Trump would never, ever get a fair trial in New York City. And I've never seen anyone, he said, who did ever get a fair trial in New York City. When my own case began, they brought it to New York when the accounts were in Philadelphia. They claimed that there was a COMEX venue, so that was good enough, even though currencies are traded in Chicago. And when my lawyer heard that they'd filed the case in New York, he said, oh, shit. I asked what was the problem. He said, you don't understand. New York practices law differently. And boy, did I ever find that out. Judges can alter the transcript and literally change the words you speak in court. The Court of Appeals ruled that they didn't have the power to order the judges to even obey the law. And he cites U.S. v. Vichitel. Hello, dated 2000. And this is even though 18 U.S. Code Section 1519 describes what they do as a felony, subject to 20 years in prison. When I forced Judge Owen, he said, there to admit that he was altering my transcripts, the DOJ said they wouldn't indict him, and the Court of Appeals lost my appeal three separate times, and then said, oh, you're out of time. The only reason they released me was because the Supreme Court finally agreed to take my case. So they released me and then told the Supreme Court the case was moot. Otherwise, I would have died, says Martin Armstrong, in solitary confinement. Folks, this is exactly what the U.S. legal system has become. And the big difference now is that with Trump, folks are finally starting to see it. And then there's this. Remember MF Global, writes Armstrong. That is when Judge Martin Glenn seized the assets of all the clients to protect the banksters that John Corzine was trading with. The trustee, sick, overseeing MF Global's liquidation, eventually confirmed that the amount of customers' funds from the failed brokerage was at least $1.6 
billion. And this, he said, at least at the time, was the biggest financial crime, perhaps in history, far worse than Bernie Madoff. This is the outright theft of client funds sanctioned by the court, which protected all the banksters. Nobody was being called to account because MF Global, headed by former Goldman Sachs CEO, Senator, and New Jersey Governor John Corzine, was also protected. The client's funds were illegally seized by the New York court and were used to cover the losses to the banksters, completely in violation of the law. That collapse was the eighth largest corporate bankruptcy in U.S. history. Corzine was never charged because he was one of them. A socialist Democrat, the U.S. regulators, sick, investigated only whether or not MF Global tapped into client money from clients' accounts as its financial condition worsened. They're ignoring the fact that it was trading with client money before the last few days. Brokerage houses, writes Armstrong, are required to keep customer money separate from their firm's money, but that was simply not being enforced in the instant case, which is why having an account with a New York entity is highly dangerous. Take this to heart, folks, because there is no rule of law in New York City. As an astute lawyer once wrote about New York, also pointing out there is no rule of law, because in the corrupt city, what we have is a connection-based society, not a contract-based society, which is why in New York, no banksters ever go to prison. The courts will always rule against people for political objectives. Now, Martin Armstrong concludes his piece this way, and while I agree with him, I do think a caveat or two and a bit of explanation is necessary, but I'll read essentially what he wrote first. Under our legal system, he says, the jury can nullify a conviction using common sense based on their own sense of justice. As numbers of people, including John Adams and the first Supreme Court Justice John Jay, have said, and here I'll quote, folks, it is the right of the jury to judge both the facts and the law according to their own conscience. And the problem, folks, is, as I've outlined at great length a number of times in the past, we have not had actual trial by jury in this country for the better part of a century. And here, Martin continues, our corrupt judges will never instruct the jury that they have that power. And I'll note, not only that, but nowadays they will actually deselect jurors and require them to take an oath that you will judge the facts only. And the law as I give it to you. And if you won't put up your hand and agree to that anti-constitutional enslavement, you're out of there. Which is at least a good thing to remember if you actually don't want to be on one of those sham non-juries anyway. Concludes Martin Armstrong, the jury can refuse to follow the corrupt law and acquit a defendant even when the evidence presented seems to point to an incontrovertible verdict of guilt. Because remember, folks, the jury is fully capable and actually has just sort of, and actually has not only the right, but I would suggest the obligation to judge the law too. If it's unconstitutional, don't enforce it. Personally, as Armstrong, I think the jury should be told that they have that power to nullify a conviction as well as to direct charges and reprimand a corrupt prosecutor in a case like this for his abuse of power. Wonderful, arguably true, and that's why you know blankety-blank and well it isn't about to be allowed to happen. Hell, they're not even going to let you talk about it. So when you see this happening, get out of there. And in the case of New York City, as he puts it, get the hell out of there and fast because pretty soon it's simply going to be no bid. And that, folks, takes me to a place where I think we need to pick up and ask about, uh, well, what other kinds of things are we not hearing? And I guess the answer is sometimes we don't even hear the good news. So this is one that caught me by surprise because it actually happened a while ago. Thanks to Mike Shedlock or Mish Shedlock and his Mish Talk for pointing this out. 
there was a new bill in Utah that was actually passed, and it's surprising, and signed by the governor into law. It's called the Utah Sovereignty Act. And it basically it does a number of things, but one of them, probably the most critical, is it uh, establishes a framework for the Utah legislature by concurrent resolution to prohibit the enforcement of various federal directives within the state government or by state government officers and officers if the legislature determines that the so-called directive violates the principles of state sovereignty. In other words, if it's constitutional overreach. And this is the part that is kind of shocking. Again, it um, it was good news, and guess what? For that reason, you didn't hear about it in all likelihood. The Utah bill was called the Utah Sovereignty Constitutional Sovereignty Act. It was signed into law by Governor Spencer Cox on January 30th. And uh, supporters called it another method of standing up to tyrannical, and they didn't put that word in there, I will, federal government overreach, said uh, Governor Cox in his statement, balancing power between state and federal sovereignty is an essential part of our constitutional system. This legislation, he said, gives us another way to push back on federal overreach and maintain that balance. So um, arguably really good news, and um, there is a lot of Discussion. I want to spend just a minute or two on this because I think it's interesting, and it shows one of the other things you don't hear is much about the Constitution itself. Uh, Mish writes that the push may stand in conflict with the Constitution's supremacy clause. Actually, folks, I will contend that it doesn't, but you're not going to hear that. It's another one of these uh, things that the press isn't going to tell you because they're going to push the big lie. They'll say the supremacy clause um, which states that federal laws take precedence over any and every state law. Yeah, that's what they'll tell you. If the federal government does something, you states had better bend over and say, thank you, sir, may I have another. The Supremacy Clause, by the way, is Article 6, Paragraph 2, or Section 2, and it says this. This Constitution and all the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof. Now, wait a second. Well, that seems to suggest, and the uh, the proponents of state tyranny, uh, I'm sorry, of federal tyranny, will say, no, it doesn't really say that, regardless of what the language claims. Um, the Constitution and the laws, which are made in pursuance of the actual Constitution, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, and by the way, there's a process there. They ignore that. Now, they don't call them treaties anymore. They call them conventions or U.N., things or basically doesn't even require a treaty to be ratified. They'll just declare it kind of like a treaty, and therefore it too trumps state law. Anyway, it says that um, this shall be the supreme law of the land. Okay, well, wait a minute. What is the Constitution? It is the supreme law of the land. By the way, here's a part they don't like to talk about that's in there. Uh, the ninth and tenth Articles of the Bill of Rights, which essentially are dead letters because you'll never hear about those either. Article 9 says the enumeration in this Constitution, uh, the Constitution, but it's the one we're looking at, of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. In other words, the fact that you are said to have a right to keep and bear arms doesn't mean you don't have a right to defend yourself and keep and bear other things as well. It's just that firearms are explicitly in enumerated in the Constitution, and therefore they have a special place. doesn't mean the state governments or the federal governments or anybody else can go steal anything else that, that you know communist governments tend to do. Well, how about this one? The Tenth Amendment, or Article 10 of the Bill of Rights, says the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved 
to the states, respectively, or to the people. So there you go. If there is a power which is not delegated. Now, interestingly, there was debate about this. And if you go read the uh, the bombs, I have talked about them in the past on this show, what I call the time bombs embedded in the Constitution. Originally, it said not explicitly enumerated or explicitly delegated. And guess what? I managed to strike that and just kind of leave it a little bit more fuzzy. I guess that gives more room for the Supreme Court to, uh, to jockey and twist and, and change things. But ultimately, if there are powers that are not explicitly delegated to the U.S. Constitution, I would argue, and I think a lot of people that care about the rule of law would say, that does not mean that the states don't, in fact, have a right to keep certain things to themselves, nor that the federal government can run roughshod over all the other God-given and once constitutionally protected rights that they have. So, again, where are we at here? Uh, essentially, the point is Utah is, uh, is declaring that we are going to establish a procedure for taking a look. And, by the way, this would have been very familiar to Jefferson, the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and so forth, about nullifying federal laws. Uh, so-called federal laws, especially if they're not law at all, like they haven't actually been ratified or they were the ATF making law out of nothing or executive orders, you name it. Wow. This is good news. Um, the um, the man who sponsored the Sovereignty Act, Utah Senator uh, Scott Sandel, said he hopes the bill spreads to other states, and he says, I think any state should be looking at adopting this. Don't you want a real organized way in your state to vet these things and look and say when the federal government is overreaching, no matter what party or ideology you espouse, unless, of course, it's total tyranny and just want to kill as many people as possible, which arguably is what we got. Well, he said this could be helpful in any state, in my opinion. So... Um, it's interesting, and of course, you will expect that uh, this will be a um, one of the things they're already talking about is EPA overreach, where they're declaring, uh, you know, the glancing goose rule. If a glancing goose looks down, sees a puddle, Big Brother's going to take control of that. Uh, also, there's die right diversity, uh, inclusion, ut equity. And a lot of people are deciding, huh, that seems to be more problem than it's worth. And, of course, it's utterly unconstitutional besides. So, again, this is the kind of good news that I think is uh, is important to focus on and recognize. A lot of times we're simply not hearing it. Now, I've got another story here that I don't really have time to do. I'll, I'll try to get uh, just a summary of it in, in about two minutes because I really want to spend some time um, wrapping things up and, and pointing out where this all leads. But um, there was an article in uh, the Brownstone Institutes, um, and, and Zero has repeated it, about EVs and why the Great Reset, based on uh, the, the EV BS, didn't pan out. Every bit of the warning, says the author, proved to be true. A good example, the electric vehicle bus. So many things that were uh, uh, supposedly wonderful and required by the non-existent man-made global warming and pseudoscientific crap that they were spewing turned out to be utter BS. Uh, the Wall Street Journal wrote that as year, uh, recently as a year ago, automakers were struggling to meet the hot demand for EVs. Well, the trouble is people eventually came to their senses and figure out what was happening. The dynamic flipped. And... Um, it was, it was interesting that just as the lockdowns hit in the spring of 2020 and supply chains were destroyed, frozen by force, isn't it amazing that at the very same time, pre-arranged government subsidies and mandates for EVs flooded the industry, all of which were ramped up unconstitutionally and at uh, gunpoint, literally, by the Biden fuel regime. Dealers and retailers uh, sold out their old inventory of cars, and they looked to manufacturers for more. But, oh, no, we got a chip problem. Couldn't produce them. And uh, ultimately, as people realized that the EVs that they, in some cases, were forced to buy instead 
weren't all that great, uh, they found problems. For example, uncomfortable truths like cold weather. Can't make it to grandma's and back if you want to run the heater. EV, um, EV range just wasn't there. And people knew that you couldn't run the air conditioner in the summer, so they're going to be hotter than hell. But hey, wait a minute. Going to freeze unless the outside air temperature is right around 65 degrees. Because there is some solar heating, don't you know? And repair bills are high, and if you try to get uh, batteries, they're not subsidized. And don't even ask about what they do to the power grid, which is being destroyed anyway. Now, dealers are selling cars that are on their lot, EVs, at a loss just to avoid keeping them around. So ultimately, says the author, the ridiculous ethos of the Great Reset convinced idiotic corporate executives that nothing would ever be the same. Maybe the 15-minute cities and all the propaganda and communist BS would pan out, or, or maybe not. In short, says the author, the illusions of these horrible, not only um, well, not well thought out and, and bad engineering and uh, command economy top-down stuff anyway, but they were literally a lie from the get-go, and they have come crashing apart. More and more, he says, it's obvious what a disaster this was. Now, here's the thing I think is interesting, and this is the reason why I wanted to mention it briefly. No one has apologized. No one has said, hey, we're sorry, this was really, really stupid. And uh, because if they had, then it would have cast doubt on all the other crap that they've been feeding people to, from non-existent man-made global warming to carbon taxes to everything else that they're using to control the peons. The big shots who wrecked the world, in other words, are still in power. And guess what? You're not hearing much about that either. So um, where I want to where I want to begin to to wrap up is a, is a quick story that I think is kind of fascinating. Uh, it it helps to to pull these things together. This is actually uh, one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. It turns out to have been the original pilot. You've probably seen it if you have any of the original series under your belt. It was called the Menagerie. It actually appeared in a couple different ways, and there's a lot of Star Trek lore about it. But it involved a planet called Talos IV. These are the guys you've probably seen the the still photos with the great big heads and the pulsing veins. And um, original captain of the Enterprise, Christopher Pike, was put on this planet, and he was held captive. There was a beautiful woman, and uh, she was uh, going to be given to be his mate, and he was kind of in a zoo, as he realized. And these um, these Talos IV, Talosians, they had the ability to produce illusion. They could put pictures in people's mind, and they were so real that the... Um, the Earth creatures, like uh, Captain Pike and uh, his uh, wannabe girlfriend, they believed all of this stuff was real. Well, eventually they began to figure out it wasn't. And there's a great scene in which um, one of the Talosians is bringing some food. He pushes it through the uh, the cage and the force field to Captain Pike, who grabs him, hauls him in, and um, bashes him and then gets his phaser. And he points the phaser at the big alien's head and he says, look... Uh, and, and by the way, uh, well, then what he does first is he, he fires it at the, the wall, and he knocks a hole in the wall, but you don't see it. The uh, Talosian is preventing him from seeing the truth of what has actually happened. The illusion holds, and you can see now the parallels here. So Pike comes up with an interesting and kind of innovative way to test his, his theory. He points the gun at the big alien head, and he says, how about I, uh, I suggest that maybe this phaser is working. And it did blow a hole in that wall. How about I test my theory on your head? And instantly, imagine this, the hole appeared. 
and Captain Pike and his uh, his girlfriend escape and uh, so forth. Well, anyway, there's more to this story, but the point here is that the illusion and the illusion that we are being fed can fall apart. It is falling apart when we see through things like EVs, when we see through things like bogus, non-existent, man-made global warming. But one of the keys is to build a BS detector and, and to recognize, be able to see it, which is, of course, part of the reason why I point out so many of these stories, things that we're not hearing that are true, things that we should know that we're not going to be told or even lied to about. And one of the ways that we can see it, and it's kind of illustrated by that uh, Star Trek story, is there is a contradiction here. There's a contradiction in so many things. It's part of the way that I began to realize that uh, some of the uh, lies we were being fed about Scripture, and by the way, Scripture itself says this, right? We've inherited lies from our fathers, things wherein there's no truth, no profit, in Sun God Day School, and all kinds of places where we've been told the law has been done away with. It wasn't. Well, guess what? You look out at the world, and that's been one of the things that's not being reported, we're not hearing. The idea that the law has been done away with, in other words, lawlessness abounds, has produced exactly what Scripture warned us it would produce. Lawlessness abounding and a complete meltdown and breakdown. So, as always, the message, the moral remains the same. Come out of her, my people. Be separate. Don't participate. But I'm going to suggest that the more we recognize that when it comes to the really important stuff, they're going to feed us the illusion. They're not going to tell us the truth. They will lie to us about it. They will try to feed us crap and tell us that, you know, uh, well, you've heard the old saying, it's not raining on your head, it's something else. But ultimately, you can and we should and we must begin to see through it. Now, with AI and all kinds of sophisticated techniques for lying, it's not going to be easy. But there's still a basic problem with the big lie, especially the kind that we're being force-fed. It does not comport with reality. So the more we understand about reality, the more we recognize things like physics and cause and effect and are capable of applying logic and asking ourselves, what's the logical conclusion to the things that they're pushing? What do we expect to have happen? What are they telling us has happened instead? And do we believe it? In other words, one of the tools we have is to employ our ability to sniff out contradictions and see, hey, this just doesn't add up. This just doesn't make sense. For example, two guys can't have a baby. And if we're getting all kinds of BS fed to us that, yeah, it's happening all over the place, we've got at least one really good clue about what is not true. And likewise, there are so many other things. The statistics that we're being fed about crime, man-made global warming, when we're going to see that the real threat is exactly the opposite, and it's far more dangerous. You name it. I guess uh, it's hard not to look at various elements of what's going on in the world and not be able to see the contradictions, not be able to see through them. But the problem is the following. AI will help improve the quality of the big lie. And it's going to get more difficult to see it to the point where ultimately we're probably going to see videos. We're going to see quotes and people saying things that look like they really said them when they didn't. Even our eyes can be deceived. And we've seen the warnings there for literally decades, not only from dystopian novels like 1984, but all the way back to Scripture in places like Matthew 24. Whether you believe those warnings or not, it's time to realize that the deceptions we're seeing are literally of biblical proportions. And the trend, at least, is clear. So pay attention.